The summer wind came blowing in right through the bay. That's free. Please listen carefully. Welcome to Christians in the Public Square with your hosts, Cole Bennett and Scott Self. Hey, buddy. Are we on? We're on. We're on. We're on. Hello. Welcome to this episode of Christians in the Public Square. Yeah, this is uh, listener feedback. That's right. We've had some. Yeah, that's a surprise. So, <laughs> I imagine we've had a lot more where people are just yelling at their iPhones. <laughs> but thank you for listening and thank you for responding. We wanted to take a moment um, to address some of some comments we've gotten from people who have cared enough to send in an email or let us hear their thoughts. I don't know that we have permission to call anybody out and tell their name. So we'll just kind of refer to the topics rather than... I think so. Hey, I'm going to read this. Uh, This is about Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts. Right. Right. Um, So if you don't know, Ananias and Sapphira were two people that had agreed to give their money to the church, as as everyone else was doing. It was a kind of communist society. Uh, Everyone had agreed to do this. uh, And Ananias and Sapphira had uh, held some money back. And in holding some money back, uh, uh, Luke tells us in Acts that they were killed. As a as a result of this, and, and so the, the kind of question is, uh, what's going on? What's so wrong? And why do Ananias and Sapphira, uh, why are they killed for uh, for their sin? That is it in a nutshell. And just to clarify, for if I may, when you say they were living in a communist society, it was a voluntary yes, it was commune yes. of the literal definition of a commune. Right. In a larger structure government that was the state government. They were not in a communist state government. That's right. Okay. That's right. It was not a government. It's elected. They elected to be a part of the community. Yes. And in being a part of the community, there were certain requirements. Yes. And not, I don't even know if it's requirements, but there were certain practices that mm-hmm. were being done. And one of those practices is we those of, those of us who had much were giving it away so that giving it, laying it at the elders' feet so that those who didn't have uh, were able to eat. And so um, there's not a lot of description in Acts about what the vehicle for that was. The only description that we have is the elder said, wow, this is a lot of work. We need deacons, right? <laughs> right? That's all we really know is that it turned out to be a lot of work. And then there is this other episode with Ananias and Sapphira. It is difficult to interpret. It's difficult to understand. Are they being punished because they did not elect to participate in a communal system? Or uh, And I think that's where this question is coming from. Let's remind our listeners of the actual narrative of what happens. Okay, well, I'll just read it. It's in Acts 5. It's not that long, so I can just read it. Fantastic. Okay, uh, in Acts chapter 5, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and bought only a part of it uh, and laid the rest at the apostles' feet. But Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds for the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and a great fear came upon all who heard it, and the young men rose and wrapped him and carried him out and buried him. And then shortly thereafter, Sapphira goes through the same thing. Okay, so yeah, that's the context. And that's where um, one of our listeners has brought up, I've heard lots of different takes on why they end up dead. 
some suggesting it's because they don't give up all their money, some because they lied about it. And Peter's response is a little confusing, too. It seems that they might be punished because they are pridefully seeking praise, but I'm always wondering why the punishment is so harsh because they are still generous to an extent. I've heard the passage used... I've heard the passage used to describe Christians and the way they give or are supposed to give and can see or have uh, heard interpretations of the story supporting both the idea of Christians shouldn't own things and must share everything and Christians can do whatever they like with their money as long as they are honest. And I'd be interested to know how you think this story can inform ways Christians should use money, kind of going along with your ideas in an earlier podcast about how Christians use money. I think it's a brilliant question. It's a great question, and it is spoken by someone who I know has listened to all of our episodes and has said, if you're going to talk about Christians and their attitude towards money and giving and the state and its structures, let's talk about Ananias and Sapphira. Yeah, I mean, because you can get away from this story by thinking um, that the reason that Ananias and Sapphira are killed is because they didn't give all their money to the poor. Right. I'm not sure that's fair, but you could get away with that You could. That's not a, a... that is not an interpretation that's hard to get to. Uh, the um, the problem I have is that there's another interpretation that I feel like is a way out. And the way out is the conversation about honesty. I think the honesty conversation is a way out for free market capitalist Christians to continue to feel good about holding on to their money. Do you know what I'm saying? What do you mean by way out? I mean, it's, a, it's convenient to say, well, they just shouldn't lie. If everybody who <laughs> told lies is punished in the church, there'd be nobody alive. <laughs> Right. So, uh, also, if everybody held on to all their to some of their money, there'd be none of us either. But, but, but this idea that it's just a moral failure in so far as they didn't tell the truth is, I think, an insufficient explanation okay. of what's going on here. And you think that sometimes people who are too uh, greedy? No, not greedy. They just want they just want off the hook. Okay. Right. For for talking about money, it's easier to talk about honesty. Got it. They don't want to use this passage to talk about money and giving. Yeah, but they, I don't think it should be. Got it. So what do you think? I actually think there's something drastic going on here. I mean, the, the, conse- the, the, the listener is right. The consequences are pretty drastic. Yeah. Right? You can't get worse than uh, breathed his last. <laughs> right. <laughs> or fall down dead or however it's translated. Well, I think the living word says God zapped him. <laughs> Go ahead. It's Cole Bennett's translation. <laughs> right. The CB. Um, A friend of ours just last week um, shared a Facebook post uh, that was uh, authored by someone else in our community. Uh, This woman uh, had been at a restaurant in our community, and um, she saw a family at the restaurant. This is on a Sunday afternoon. uh, Hold hands and pray before their meal, which might not have been a big deal, except that the person who uh, led the prayer proceeded at a later point in the in the meal to refer to a waiter as um, an expletive n-word. So how's that? And we, it doesn't matter what they said, but they used the n-word in some other. It was a racial element. slur. It was a racial slur, right? Right. About one of the waiters. So this woman uh, tells the story, and she tells it in a brilliant way. Uh, I, I love everything about her storytelling and um, and the point of her story. But she went to the uh, table and said, hey, I noticed y'all were praying. Where do you go to church? And they mentioned the name of a church that is uh, in some ways affiliated with the, the branch of Christianity that you and I 
uh, uh, share in the same tradition. Anyway, they mentioned the name of the church, and she said, well, then that's a church I'll never go to because um, you uttered this racial epithet, and you are not genuine people, and you're the very reason why I don't go to church, um, and I will never go to your church. Uh, so she called him out, and she put this on her Facebook about how she had done this. Well, our friend, uh, who I believe goes to this congregation, am I right? Yes. He, um, he put it up and said, hey, folks, just so you know, this happened. And it was amazing to me to see the number of people, the number of people who claim to be good uh, card-carrying liberals, who claim to be a part of my, my branch of you know, political philosophy, wanted to be clear that this behavior does not represent the whole of us, doesn't represent all of us. There are, I mean, there, uh, there, not everybody that goes to our church is a racist. Only some of us are. Um, and beyond the church, not everyone, not every Christian. Right. Yeah, you could go, not every Christian is right. this way, right? right? And not every member of our community is this way. The, the church is just, a, I think, a placeholder for a group of people. But the number of defenses that this is not us, I mean, that's, that's just that person, and trying to individualize this from people who keep talking about, and I'm one of these people who keeps talking about how we have uh, systemic issues that we need to address when it comes to racial injustice, right? But all of a sudden, when it's my community or it's my church, let's make it clear, there are some people who are racist, but that's an individual thing. Not all of us are this way. And my criticism is, you got to own this. You've got to decide that this is serious to the degree that the whole church says, um, I do mean you have to take it really, really seriously. And it can't just be, you know, not all of us lie. Not all of us are dishonest about our giving. Not all of us are racists because you created a, a, a place, a safe place for him, for this person to sit. And they believed they were a part of your community. And if they believed they were a part of your community, why didn't you dang deal with it? And if you don't dang deal with it, then it's a problem. Right. And so you were just as upset by your own community's response as you were with the the man who prayed and then maybe not just as but yes as you were at, okay. we need to own it we need okay. to own that and that that pertains to Ananias and Sapphira okay so so i think Ananias and Sapphira are a great illustration of the severity uh, to the community the kind of um, warning that belongs to the community when these kinds of things happen uh, notice in uh, verse 5 when, where, of, of uh, Acts chapter 5 where I read, When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and a great fear came upon all who heard it. It has an effect on the community, and the community embraces it and recognizes we got problems, we need to deal with our problems. Right? They didn't say that. I didn't do that. Right. <laughs> or it's just one of us. It was, you know, uh, not everybody is uh, uh, dishonest, or not everybody withholds their money. I mean, it's quite possible that we meet Ananias and Sapphira when we get to heaven. It's not out of the realm of possibility. It doesn't say they were damned forever. It says they died. But the, the church responded to that in... Uh, in severe ways. And I think that church response is the thing we have to t grab a hold of. Not so much what happens to Ananias and Sapphira, but the response that the great fear came upon the church and the church recognized we got to take things seriously. Okay, so let me push a little bit and say, what do you mean uh, first in the day of Ananias and Sapphira and then in today, in today's world, what do you mean about 
taking it seriously. If I was a member of that church and I saw Ananias and Sapphira fall down dead, our, our person who emailed us still wants to know, is it because they lied? Is it because they didn't give enough? I, if I am perfectly willing to take the lesson of them falling down dead, and that lesson is, hey, take this whole thing seriously, what should I sure. walk out of that assembly understanding to take seriously um, more clearly? Yeah, so I don't actually know the answer. I don't know whether this should be interpreted. I don't think it's I don't think it's fair to say that everyone has the responsibility to give everything that they have to the church. Okay, right. That's um, if your if your community, uh, if your faith community has agreed to that, that would be a different conversation. But um, I don't think everybody's faith community has agreed to that. I also know of people who have great wealth, who believe that everything they own belongs to God, and they are merely figuring out how to help uh, move that around for His glory. That uh, it's impossible for me to judge what they should or should not be doing. And in many cases, I'm I'm guessing that if I were to judge, I'd judge too harshly and misunderstand the the um, uh, the kind of discipleship that goes into a lot of people's stewardship of their money, even when it's a lot. So that's not fair. Well, you're looking at me funny. I know. I'm thinking of a person saying, so what's the answer? The answer is take it seriously. Right. Take what seriously? The giving, the representation of your faith? Because to me, this, this scripture is saying they misrepresented their zeal toward the way. They acted like they were giving X when they were giving X minus 100, mm -hmm. and they wanted the accolades from their faith community that they were participating as seriously as they said they were, and they weren't. Right. Why do you think they lied? Because they wanted to feel, they wanted what uh, the respect that is due to a person who behaves like they said they were behaving or the way they pretended they were behaving. That's right. They weren't actually doing it. I, I, they were all hat and no cattle. Right. But the no cattle part of it is they're not giving everything they have mm. to, the, to the church, right? So I don't think it's possible to just say they were dishonest and that's why the Holy Spirit struck them dead. Okay. It's, they were dishonest <clears throat> and they were dishonest because people likes their cash. <laughs> so you can't I, – I don't think you can only characterize this as the sin of pride or the sin of – uh, of dishonesty or the sin of greed. It's sin. Okay. So do you have anything to say about Peter's response that might be confusing? Well, part of Peter's <clears throat> response that makes it confusing is he, he talks about the, the two elements, actually all three elements. He says, you got all the money from this land, didn't you? You have it. So don't pretend like you didn't, you don't, you don't have the money to give. So he's got a problem with their giving. He's got a problem with their dishonesty. You did not lie to man, but you lied to God. So that's number two. And then number three is he's, he seems to be responding to the pride that, that they want the, the accolades uh, for. So Peter has a problem with everything. <laughs> so Peter lays out this, this triangle and goes, it's all bad, and it's, I'm moving on to the next that's yet. right. And okay. I think to take any one side of that triangle and try and analyze okay. it through that lens is not necessarily fair. Okay. It's sin. It's sin in the church, and the sin in the church has to be uh, taken seriously. Um, you know, I, I remember a, uh, an old preacher uh, was giving me advice when I was first coming up. Um, 
because, you know, I, I kind of needed to know how to best deal with people who wanted to confess their sins to the congregation. And, you know, how do you deal with that? And um, uh, this old old fellow was, uh, you know, we're sitting over our coffee and he's shaking his head and he goes, you know, uh, when people do that, they're, they're illustrating that we're a place for sinners to be and that we all, they're just the brave ones to confess what they got going on when everybody else is too cowardly yeah. to share. And he said, it's a great time for the community to confess its sin rather than to make it about the individual. So if John comes to the, for, to, comes to the front and says, hey, everybody, I'm guilty of uh, drinking too much last night, uh, then the rest of us respond by saying, yes, we, uh, we have sin and we need forgiveness. It's not just that John needs our prayers because he's a failure, <laughs> right? right? Uh, and recognize that belonging to one another Comes, it comes with resurrection on the other side. Right. And that's taking it very seriously. I don't know if we answered the question directly. I, I do think, though, that Ananias and Sapphira are really interesting insofar as the church's reaction. I mean, Luke includes this. It's one of the few instances we have of an event that happens in terms of church organization. And it's kind of a big one, but yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's one of the few instances where Luke tells us about a conflict in the church and how it, uh, and 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 how the people responded, but the seriousness of that, I think, it's the seriousness with which the congregation responded. That's something I think we have to take a, uh, into consideration as you interpret the passage. Let's move on to our second uh, listener comment. And that is from a dear friend of mine who was listening to a podcast from a few weeks back where you had asked me, why did I think so many people of college student age now, so I guess people born in the, uh, the year 2000, mm-hmm. 2001, why, did it, why do I feel that a lot of those folks are now really um, embracing the pendulum swing of the liberal left? Sure. And also in that was the question of um, government support back in the 60s might have been, you know, we'll make sure that you have uh, beans and rice, but we wouldn't. And a roof. And a roof. But that now we're having different conversations about a different set or different perception of needs and what poverty means and that kind of thing. That's right. And and it seems that in my lifetime, I was saying, um, in my lifetime— Things have been moving to the left, and particularly with students that I meet here at my university, it seems quite a bit to the left. And I said, as an answer, I think it can be discussed in terms of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that since we have so much that we need and our cups run over, um, that people then start to redefine what a need is in ways that people who grew up at a different time, don't. They describe needs more liberally because of Maslow's hierarchy. And my friend um, emailed me and said, hey, I listened to this, and I'm, I wonder um, about your comment that young people, because I also had said that young people born in, since 2000 had not really much experienced wars. Back in the 60s and 70s mm-hmm. with Vietnam, you had friends being called up and drafted away, and they would come back and... World War II, that I mean, it was just World everybody was contributing in some fashion or That's another, right. right? That's right. And so the way we viewed 
the difference between needs and wants mm -hmm. vary, uh, in my opinion, from now because of the Maslow's hierarchy. My friend said, not so fast. Wouldn't you agree, she said, that students who were born in the 2000s are just experiencing a different type of daily anxiety and antagonism based upon things that have happened since 2001 in school shootings, which didn't start in 2001. But since 9-11, we've had so much domestic terrorism and we've had students, as you have pointed out, Scott, with bulletproof backpacks. And, yeah. and we live in a quite a different world where people are much more mindful of a day-to-day -day anxiety. And I thought that was a point worth discussing. Yeah, um, you know, she she mentions nine eleven and but yeah, this was my, I was thinking it's it's a lot. I mean, that's enough, <laughs> right? For right. for social anxiety, but um, you know, w when we were when we were kids, we never imagined school shooting. When Columbine happened, right. Columbine happened in a school district that um, that I had attended growing up. Um. When Columbine happened, as a culture, we were gobsmacked. How could somebody do such a thing? Do you realize that in this year there have been more mass shootings than there have been days of the year? Mm. It's just a different environment. Uh, so there's this kind of uh, anxiety of just about living and what it means to live in our in our in our time. And I do think. Uh, she's got something. I, I still think your point still stands. Um, but I think it's fair to stop for a moment and ask, um, did, we, did we sell Generation Z a little short by, um, by noting that they haven't had war? It's been a different kind. A different kind of war. A different and, kind of anxiety. And the, right. And the wars that we have been involved in, there have been people serving multiple tours. Yeah. Uh, Not and, a draft, but uh, right. yeah, we've, we've had uh, friends at, uh, in, the, in the service who have served nine, ten tours. Yeah. That's crazy. You so know. just because the draft isn't going on and sending people to Vietnam doesn't mean that there aren't quite a few people worried about loved ones and involved with the military in their lives in some way that that is anxiety provoking that's right and you only need to go to a sporting event or go to the airport <laughs> or um be a teacher in a school district um we're at we're talking right now at the time when schools are starting up where all the in-service training these days includes uh how to deal with mass shootings on your campus yeah that's a, that's amazing yeah it's a, that's got a that's got to result in some dif some difference that you and I didn't experience. You know, I, I think when you talk about a generation who doesn't know what war is, it was ours because, <laughs> you know, we we were kids in the late 70s and 80s. We didn't know Vietnam and we we had it OK. Yeah, we did have it. We did have it quite different. I, I think then I might revise my answer to why. Why do I think the definition or the line between needs and wants has moved to the left so much. I guess I would revise it a little bit by saying the perspective of felt needs of day-to-day -day life have changed. And lots of families have all they need to eat and sleep and go to work and go to school. They still have anxiety. They are not free from things to worry about and ponder over and that affect their health. Well, I think that's 
I think that's fair. Uh, you know, I, I read an article recently where um, it was by a libertarian who was noting, I think you're the one who put it on Twitter or something, <laughs> was noting that, um, you know, back in the day, I might have owned maybe three sets of clothing. Mm-hmm. And I mean, a wealthy person or a person of means would have maybe three sets of clothing. I know I have more than three sets. I I have to go through my closet, you know, on a regular basis and filter stuff out because there's too much in there. And I've got a lot of disposable income I can spend on clothing um, that, you know, um, that if I if I had to live with three sets of clothing, that would feel constricting. And yet... Um, so my perception of what I need for clothing has changed and it's become that I need a lot more. You look at calorie intake right. and, the, you know, the, I'm not sure that they're necessarily quality calories, but we can ingest a great number of calories very quickly and very inexpensively. Right. Um, I remember watching The Biggest Loser. There was a, an episode where a woman was – they were trying to talk to the to these people trying to lose weight about, you know, buying good foods, fruits and vegetables. And she she noted – she said, but I can feed my kids uh, one large pizza. We can get one, one large pizza for five bucks. And I remember Bob on Biggest Loser was looking at, and shaking his head and said, I can't compete with that. Right? And it's true. You can buy so many calories. Uh, they might not be good for you, but you can buy many calories. Right. So our our perception of needs, I think, have changed. Um, maybe some of it's technological. Maybe some of it's uh, that things run cheaper. I don't know. But we do have a different set uh, perception of what our needs are. So I think your your point still stands, even if war might not be the answer. Yeah, if war is not the defining coefficient to see the yeah. to see my answer. Yeah. I also loved the the title of her email, War, Peace, and Gen Z. <laughs> right. The other um, uh, listener feedback I thought we might want to respond to was um, a friend of mine in Denver uh, pointed out, I think, an important passage in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul says to the church in Corinth, do you not know that you, the church, will judge the world? And so part of his question was, we're talking about you know, you and I are pretty comfortable saying that it's not our responsibility to um, to necessarily require the world around us uh, uh, to act morally. Um, and you're smiling. What do you think? No, no, about? go ahead. Um, <clears throat> to act morally. And in fact, um, there is this passage where Paul says to the church in Corinth, you uh, you will judge the world. It's not it's not just that we are going to try and influence the world to be better. As Christians, but there comes this place, at least in Paul's cosmology or in his uh, uh, in his end times theology, there comes this point where we will eventually serve as its judges, and that comes up not only in Pauline theology but also in Johannine theology and Revelation, which seems to go against yours and my conversations about not wanting to the church to use power structures to rest w r e s t correct behavior from our fellow citizens. Uh, yeah, I think you said it better than I did. Yeah, that's. Uh, I think that's a fair criticism, or at least it's a fair criticism coming from 1 Corinthians 6. And so uh, I thought I'd uh, uh, kind of contextualize this a little bit. What's happening in 1 Corinthians 6 is that Paul is giving uh, – he does this throughout the letter where he gives – he's deals with uh, different issues now concerning this and now concerning that and now concerning this other thing. 
And it gets to now concerning, apparently there were some uh, members who were suing others. So they were going to the state, asking the state, hey, solve this problem between me and Bob. Me and Bob are Christians, but uh, we need the state to come in and tell Bob to give me back what, I, what he owes me or uh, and so or protect me from Bob. It was uh, going to the state and asking it for protection. And Paul says, uh, why do you go to the world for judgment? Do you not know that we will eventually judge the world? You know, in fact, we're the ones who decide what's right and wrong. We don't go to the world asking for it to tell us what's right and wrong. So it's a it's a particular usage of the word judge. It is, and it's uh, it's difficult in part because Jesus Himself says, "I did not come to judge the world," and so <laughs> <laughs> right, <laughs> he literally says that. And so Paul is saying, "Do you not know we will do this thing?" Um, so there is some, and I think uh, the, the way I would respond is I still stand by my per, my point of view that we don't have a responsibility to create morality in the world around us or to enforce it anyway, uh, if that's what you mean by judge. I think Paul is talking about where discernment and morality lie. We're the ones with the secret sauce. I think Paul is making the argument we're the ones who, who uh, have the ability to fully understand what is truly moral, what is informed by agape, and what is not informed by agape. And you can't go to a judge and ask a judge to solve a problem that we should have the better tools to solve, right? So um, so when Paul is saying, do you not know that we will judge the world, I don't know that he's saying that we will sit in judgment with a, with a scepter and say good and bad, but that we're the ones who... Uh, uh, stand for something deeper and better uh, and more noble, and we have access to the secret sauce, and we ought to we ought to um, take that responsibility seriously, and definitely not go to the world and ask the world to tell us how to be good people. I believe you have a story that is a great example of this uh, from your days of ministry in Honolulu. Oh yeah, well yeah, uh, we we had a situation where. One church was suing another church. I was minister of a congregation, and uh, I, I, I will say I don't think it was it was not in the courts yet. It, we were in arbitration, but we were going to uh, we were trying to engage in arbitration. We were with a lawyer to figure out whether we were going to be stay in arbitration or whether we were going to go to court. This was over a piece of land. It I was think. over a piece yeah. of land. Okay. Yeah. Our religious traditions tend to be uncentralized, right? And so each congregation owns its property. And for some reason, there was a dispute over who the deed belonged to of a certain piece of land. And Hawaii land is a thing. It's, yes. it's pretty valuable. <laughs> who owns it and uh, who has responsibility for it. So anyway, um, uh, but as the minister of the congregation, I was involved in some of these discussions, but I didn't really want to be, but I was uh, one of the official uh, officials of the of the congregation's trust, and so um, yeah, we were there. Uh, and one of the one of the other members of the trust was being somewhat unreasonable about the whole thing, as were the other the members of the other congregation. So what ended up happening is um, we were meeting over and over and over again with this lawyer, and this lawyer was not a part of our faith tradition, but was a Christian. And uh, we're meeting with him over and over again, and things are escalating and getting uh, pretty hot and heated. And at a certain point, he looks at us and he says, you know, there's something in the scriptures about not, churches not suing each other. <laughs> and I, I, was, I was so uh, – it was such a perfect moment uh, to bring out just how crazy this is. This is our lawyer who's getting paid and is 
frustrated with us <laughs> that he's getting paid uh, to deal with this problem when we should be able to figure out a way to deal with it. And I think his point was entirely valid. Um, made uh, some of the other members of the trust a little bit upset. But um, but I think it was the right thing to say to us, which is you've got to be able to figure this out without asking you know the courts to decide for you. What a what a testimony of his yeah. loyalty to say essentially why are you coming to the courts? That's right. You are brothers and sisters who should be able to figure this out. And even though I'm getting paid for it, I don't like to see it. That's right. That's no, fantastic. I, I loved I loved the guy for it. He he was right. First of all, and second of all, he's he's saying this at uh, potentially personal sacrifice, right. right? So his ethos goes up even higher. With even me. higher. Um, yeah, but then there's this deeper principle that you don't go to the world asking the world to give you advice on how to how to solve things, and I, that kind of gets into our, our our topic for today. I mean, we we've done listener feedback, but one of the things that I wanted to kind of wrestle with is a, as an article I asked you to look at, and some mm-hmm. of your reaction to that. Um, specifically about my own point of view, but do you feel like we answered his question sufficiently? I do, as best as we could. Best as we could. What I want to take things today, Cole, is I want to kind of throw something out at you. I asked you to look at an article by uh, Randall Balmer called The Real Origins of the Religious Right. Balmer wrote a book, call, uh, wrote a book called uh, Redeemer, The Life of Jimmy Carter. Uh, he's He's one of my ilk, not one of your ilk mm-hmm. when it comes to uh, political philosophy. So or economic philosophy. So I think some of his criticism um, needs to be couched in terms of um, that he's a a person who's criticizing the Christian right from the perspective of the left. Um, But his his argument is this, that the Christian right was never really all that worried about abortion until 1978. When it could pay off for them politically. That's right. When they could garner a voting block by using rhetoric that ginned people up about abortion. That's right. And I've linked to the article in the show notes if you want to if you want to read it. Uh, it's um this from 2014. Uh, but yeah, it's the um it, it's kind of a criticism of uh, the religious right or the Christian right or the moral majority um, that uh, that we tend to associate with the primary uh, impetus or primary force or primary issue is that of abortion. Balmer is making the argument that these people proceed. In fact, they were kind of fine with abortion. There are instances of uh, the president of the Southern Baptist Association at the time of Roe v. Wade said, that's good. Leave it to the states to decide that's uh, um, uh, that's, that's fine and dandy. Uh, but on the other hand, um, many institutions of higher education, Christian institutions of higher education uh, were being penalized. Uh, and threatened to lose their uh, their tax exempt status if they remained segregated, and um, if they were not going to desegregate, and um, if they if they were going to remain whites only or men only or those kinds of things, then they wouldn't get the tax breaks, um, uh, and that this is where the uh, moral majority actually found its feet and found its footing was on this issue, not on abortion. It's just that abortion became a, a, um, a more convenient and, um, and communicable uh, issue to rally Christians around. Um, and the criticism is... You say it's where the moral majority got its feet, but I think his point was that it was subterfuge because what they really wanted was to control 
They wanted to maintain control of their admissions processes at faith-based universities and still get a tax cut. Yeah, but I don't even think it was – I think his argument is that it wasn't even that issue. It's that they wanted power. Well, yes. Right? I mean, here's the paragraph. The new political philosophy must be defined by us, conservatives, in moral terms packaged in non-religious language and propagated throughout the country by our new coalition. Uh, He goes on to quote uh, uh, Weyrich by saying, when political power is achieved, the moral majority will have the opportunity to recreate this great nation. That's way more than about Bob Jones getting uh, tax breaks, right? Yes. I mean, he says, the leadership, moral philosophy, and workable vehicle are at hand, just waiting to, uh, to, uh, to be blended and activated. If the moral majority acts, results could well exceed our wildest dreams. Yes. Yes. So. They wanted power. They wanted power. And they wanted it for a lot of reasons. And they said it was about abortion at times when they had said other things that went against this. That's right. And, uh. And I think you came up this this uh, when I asked you to read this, this was coming at a time where you had an overarching question about where I was coming from. If I'm so concerned about this issue of Christians having power, yeah, then um, then you see some uh, inconsistency. What was slippage? (laughs) Slippage. Yeah. So if if you are in fact a socialist in your political leanings, I'm in my. Economic leanings, but go ahead. Politically, I'm a Democrat. In your okay. democratic socialist, liber- okay. libertarian socialist, <clears throat> and no matter whether you say democratic or socialist, you those both of those ideologies um, use the power of the state. Yes. To rearrange property. That's right. And by property, listeners, I mean not only the land that your house sits on, but the earnings that you have That's negotiated right. in a private. Mm-hmm. negotiation with your employer. That's right. So for someone who um, says, hey, read this article and let's look about how the yeah. the moral majority wanted to use power, isn't that bad? Right. I want to say, yes, isn't it bad how people <laughs> want to use power to redistribute property? Why then are you doing it? Why do you feel so attached to that paradigm? Yeah, and I think that's entirely fair. I mean, one of the things I think is consistent about your point of view is that you believe that the church should not be coercive, and you believe the state should not be coercive. Correct. Right? Um, At all times, we should use persuasion. Yeah. And may, and protect rights. The state should protect rights. The church should use persuasion. Yeah. Neither, and, and, so, and, and so you and I are in agreement that the church should use persuasion, and then I'm cool with the state using coercion. Right. Right? That's and the difference. That seems to be... Inconsistent. It is inconsistent, and I think you are entirely fair to point out that inconsistency, first of all. Second of all, I am ultimately a Kierkegaardian. I'm very comfortable in living in paradox. <laughs> Third of all, I think, I, I think that there is a deeper, a deeper reason than political philosophy for my view that, um, that the state should be involved in coercion or that you know, I mean, if Hobbes were here, I think Hobbes would call it the sovereign, uh, although I'm not a Hobbesian in that, in that sense, that there should be coercion. There should be some power that, um, that coerces, the, uh, coerces the people into uh, social agreements. But that comes from a point of view about who humans are. And I think you have a very optimistic – I don't think it's naive – and I think it's noble, 
but I think you have an optimistic view of human nature, and I don't. I think humans, left to their own devices, are, are only capable of summa malum, as Hobbes said, not summa, uh, not summa bonum. It's we're only capable of uh, ultimate evil, not of ultimate good. Yes, but my paradigm allows me to agree with Hobbes or not, and your paradigm doesn't. Yeah, yeah, I think Hobbes is right. <laughs> I know, but you see what I mean? Yeah. My paradigm is a small government that says, believe who you want, yeah. and then coerce if, or, or, mm. or persuade, if you will. And if you believe people are inherently not good and not kind to their neighbors or whatever, then y'all can decide what to do about it, but you can't harm other people. But oh, yeah, but I, see, I think the laissez-faire is potentially, and I, and I think it has been demonstrably, harmful to certain populations. I think laissez-faire is not necessary. So laissez-faire means hands off or free market capitalism or, you know, where we, where we don't, we don't try to manipulate uh, the markets. At least the state doesn't try to. I think that has been demonstrably harmful. Uh, so I, this is where we were talking before. I think there are violences everywhere. And uh, you, I think you believe that there might be less violence if people were free. Well, I think that market failures are seen short-term and market successes are seen long-term and liberals focus your attention on the short-term. Look at this pizza store that went out of business. This man no longer has a job. Well, that's because the other guy's pizza is better. And this guy will either sell more pizza at another location, he'll leave town, or he'll change industries. But that doesn't mean harm. That means the market is working. Yeah, I, 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 don't, the, I don't think it's just a, merely a criticism of the market. It's a r- criticism of the market's interaction with power. There is no power, except I would like to enter into a voluntary exchange with you. I will give you $5 for that hamburger. Yeah. There, there is no—it is all voluntary. I will say that I, what you're not saying, and I think is important from your point of view, is that you also believe that the wealthy should not have or experience unique access to power in democracy either. If we followed the Constitution, they would not have unique access to power, right? That's correct. That's called corruption. Right. Yes. And the wealthy people— I'm saying corruption is going to happen, man. It's going to happen because people have money, and when they have money, they're going to be corrupt. And that is a different argument from laissez-faire is inherently harmful. That's different. Okay, that's fair. I hear exactly what you mean. If you have a problem with your congressman being bought, your problem is not with the purchaser, it's with the congressman. Yeah, I'm saying my problems with humanity and human nature. Oh, well, <laughs> that okay. you're, that 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 the the congressman is always that's always an option and it's always a temptation and it's always a temptation that will be that that will fall to the there's no temptation for the congressman to accidentally do something for somebody who doesn't have anything to offer them. The power different the, the power differentials are that if I have power, I am uh, I am incentivized to work that power in favor of the wealthy. I'm not incentivized to work that power in the favor of the poor. Well, then 
then you know what you're doing is you're talking about if you're a, a congressperson. That's right. And, yeah. I, and I'm also need to, I also need to clarify before I go forward because I don't think this represents your point of view. That's that, correct. That it also means that we're not following the Constitution. Right? It means that when you put your hand down and said, I swear yeah. to follow the Constitution, that you're now lying and are right. subject to be fired by your constituents. And the fact that they're not firing you is because, in my opinion, we're at a different point of Maslow where I can have my check reduced – Year after year after year by yeah. an extra percentage to pay for ridiculous government expenditures, and I'm willing to not kill people about it mm. and revolt and force a new Continental Congress to convene and redo the, the whole United States because one day that's going to happen. I feel if we continue to have more and more aggression and coercion against our real property, and I'm not talking like a lunatic. I'm not saying I'm going to go get a gun and shoot someone. I'm saying there is a remedy for when the government has overstepped its bounds and when people have elected, continued to elect people to redistribute property, and that is to call a new Congress and redo the whole country. Or a political revolution, Bernie, a la Bernie Sanders. Or <laughs> – that's right. I'm not, I'm not an endorser of Sanders, by the way. By I way. have seen no evidence that you're not an endorser of Bernie Sanders. No. But this is, this is good because um, this was kind of like my, my email feedback to our yeah. previous podcast. No, I think is it's entirely how can fair to you say. Continue to say we shouldn't truck with power so, and, and be a socialist. Yeah, so the, the trucking with power thing is um, look, I. I felt a little bit guilty for saying this, and and there actually was a listener response to this where I pointed out that I think Christianity is largely an individual experience. I I choose to do that, and I choose to do it in a community. But um, but when Jesus in Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus talks about um, you know he's not offering laws of the land, he's offering laws by that Scott lives by mm-hmm. and chooses to live by. Um, and so the law of the land may say, do not murder, but I need as an individual to choose not to hate my brother, mm-hmm. right? The law of the land says, do not commit adultery, but I need to choose as an individual. I don't know if it does or not, but I need to choose as an individual to not lust in my heart. Those are things I have to f- fix inside. And I don't think they can be done through coercion. I don't think it can, I don't think Christianity can be achieved. And I think we do a really, really bad job of representing our morality in some uh, watered down version that uh, everybody is held accountable to. I mean, you know, The Handmaiden's Tale is a perfect example of a universe that looks like what I don't want the church to be. It's it's all moralized, but nobody's heart has changed. Everybody's heart is wicked. I'd rather be persuasive than coercive when it comes to uh, uh, issues of morality, issues of goodness, uh, issues of virtue, or at the end of the day, uh, issues of agape. For me, that's persuasive and it's not coercive. And the church has no business trying to enforce its interpretation of agape on the people around it. But I do have this weird separation, and it's it feels a little bit um, Cartesian to say I got this spiritual world and I've got the physical <laughs> world. But uh, I do I do think in terms of uh, political realities that coercion is not only is it permissible, it's necessary. It's necessary. It's necessary to limit uh, differentials of power. And, and one of those is the market and others could be the government and others could be social constructs or those kinds of things. And the difference then between you and me here would be that you think it can be done by central planners and I think it can be done best by the market 
and that it can. Oh yeah, I would say the people, but yeah, right. I think you should have a voice in that. I don't think I, that's where I separate from Hobbes. Is Hobbes thinks that should be the king, right? And I don't believe that it should be a sovereign or it should be an oligarchy. It should be a democracy. But yeah. Well, this this would be such a longer podcast episode. Well, it, it's cool because. <clears throat> We both have people who say, how in the world can you separate your spiritual paradigm from your state paradigm? I get people asking me that all the time. How do you feel when people say that? Do you feel like they're inaccurate or do you feel like they just don't understand why you need to separate? What is uh, – I mean because I get I, – I don't get the accusation, mm-hmm. but – Except for me. I get it from you. I don't get it from liberals, but I get it from you. That's right. And so in the same way I mentioned before, people have said, um, how can you possibly not vote for single-payer health care? Don't you want people to – sick people to get well? And that's a loaded question. And when I tell them I separate Mm -hmm. my Christian duty to help sick people get well with the state strictures, then we enter into a whole other separation of how can you separate that. And I think what you've just done now is very helpfully said I can separate – um, persuasion I need to use with agape and coercion that I feel the state at hand, which is all made of failed humans, needs to have. And I can respect that as a person who has to – I disagree with it, but I can respect it as someone who has to explain that all the time, the difference between my spiritual self and my state self. Yeah, I, I, and I also said when we were discussing this on email, I, discu- I, I said that um, – my political philosophy is ontological, and what I mean by that is it's based upon existential realities, right? Yeah. It's not based upon what, what I wish the world were like. Mm-hmm. I, think it's, I think it's pragmatic. Um, I just don't know of a time where there was a government that didn't coerce people. Policy is in and of itself. No matter what the policy is, a policy is coercive. So, for example, um, just uh, if I decide to play my music loud, I'm exercising my freedom. Unless you don't like me playing my music loud, it's no longer an expression of my freedom. It's coercing my music on your ears, right? Not necessarily. Go ahead. Well, that doesn't harm me construed narrowly. Well, taking your money doesn't harm you construed narrowly either. Well, that's a matter of opinion. <laughs> okay. Right? Well, so is the music if you can't sleep. Well, and that's... That's right. You'd have to get into My point zoning is, ordinances and yeah. Hello, and, hello, hello, policy and hello coercion. Yes, I'm but, saying it happens all the time. Yes, but we have a very carefully worded document to tell us that's where and that you very are a purist. Carefully worded document says harm is construed narrowly. Taking my money is harm. Playing your music loud may or may not be because my my money is mine. It's my property. Yeah, etc. So, I this is where liberals and conservatives and libertarians have the most place to discuss is what constitutes harm. Well, um, so I, you know, and, and I actually said something to you that um, just recently, uh, Lou Dobbs, um, who I'm not a big fan of, what you're, should I not talk about? No, him? no, it's fine. He's anyone on Fox News has an immediate reaction by listeners. So I'm always a little wary, but go ahead. <laughs> well, that's what I'm going to actually work You're going to defend him. A little bit. Yeah. yeah. Uh, which feels weird for me. <laughs> I know. I, I know. But, um, yeah, so uh, was it last week? There were some people that were demonstrating at a um, 
at an ice facility and um, uh, one of the guards that was trying to pull into the parking lot ran over some of the protesters. And uh, I'm looking for it and I can't find it, but I'll put it in show notes. That you know, uh, Dobbs's response was, "Well, uh, they were impeding on his right to go to work, or uh, something of something of the nature," which on its face seems absurd. But uh, I and I hate to say this, but Lou Dobbs has a point, and the point is that these protesters sitting, uh, uh, I'm doing air quotes, but peacefully on the curb are preventing him they were they were they were blocking the driveway and they are preventing him from going to work which may mean that he I'm not sure but it could mean that he's not able to punch the clock mm-hmm. they might be depriving him of his uh, ability to to earn money or to to gain property um, and should they have that right to keep him I mean there is this kind of um, conflict of liberties. They have a liberty to protest and a liberty of speech, especially on public property. And uh, I think he probably does have at least the right to go to work. I think a libertarian would be hard pressed to say that it would that there's not a a, a less liberty robbing way of handling that situation. <laughs> right. It's, it's <laughs> definitely not. There's no. There's no justification. I don't. I don't know that. Yeah. But coercion is happening on both sides. Is yeah. my point. Yeah. And as much as I hate to say, Lou Dobbs may have a point because I don't think he thought about it this much. <laughs> but as much as I hate to say it, I think he may have a point when he's when when you come to the conclusion that coercion is always happening. That the, that it's. It's optimistic to assume that coercion is only happening, that if it's happening by the market, that that's not a kind of coercion. That we but it's voluntary. Market right. coercion is voluntary. Interesting. That's my yeah. only thing to add to that is – You choose whether to respond to it or not. You are in the millions and millions and millions of individual agreements between people, lead and price signals, and it, it build, it's built the country. Yeah. That's something I got to hear. <laughs> okay. I don't agree, but I have to hear it. And I, and I, my, my only point is I don't think it ends up being about political philosophy. I think the reason we come to our political philosophy is about different views of human nature. Okay. Do you think that's fair? That's fair. Because I, I just think people are bad. 